good morning and welcome to the Debrief Podcast here on FingerLakes1.com. I'm Josh Durso, joined today by Ted Baker, Finger Lakes Morning News. You've heard him every day this week if you've been listening on FM. Yes, we are on FM. Thank you for pointing that out. I, I'm just I'm just here to do the Lord's work and remind people that, that radio works on FM and AM. That, that's still how it goes. What channels are they listening to you on? WGVA in Geneva, 95.9 FM and 1240 AM. WAUB in Auburn, 98.1 FM and 1590 AM. So as always, we're breaking down this week's, uh, wow, a lot of headlines. Headlines, headlines, headlines. Um, so let's start in Seneca Falls. We talked about it this morning on the radio. Uh, by now, everyone has heard about the controversial resolution to end all financial and in-kind donations uh, to events sponsored by the National Women's Hall of Fame in Seneca Falls. Uh, the town of Seneca Falls has given over $200,000 since 2010, and the Hall of Fame has received over $400,000 in block grants, uh, block grant dollars uh, since, I guess, over that same period. Um, now, obviously, this is spurred by Supervisor Greg Lazaro. He is the one who pushed the uh, the resolution out, and it actually appears, judging from the reaction um, from some of the uh, other town board members, that they were a little bit surprised by the, the resolution. Um, your thoughts, obviously, you guys spent a lot of time this morning talking about it. You and I talked about it this morning. Um, your thoughts on sort of where that stands and and reaction to it i guess my first reaction was i can't believe we're back to relitigating the vietnam war again 50 years later um there's always been with some people on the right a difficulty in separating troops and what they do from the politicians decisions that send them to do what they do um you know, why Jane Fonda? I mean, you know, there's all kinds of controversial people already in the hall. I, I don't know. It's, it's, I understand the point politically. But also, the more I thought about it as the day went on, here we are in the birthplace of women's rights in Seneca Falls. You know, Susan B. Anthony was jailed for voting. I, I mean, pretty much like we've talked about, all our social progress tends to come from protest and from people sticking their necks out. So, you might not agree with what Jane Fonda did, but a lot of people opposed the Vietnam War. And I think in retrospective, looking back now, I'd be willing to bet, and I said this on the air this morning, I'll bet you more than half the people who served in it think it was a bad idea. Yeah, and, and I was actually kind of surprised. Um, well, let me rephrase that. wasn't really surprised with the reaction because the reaction was sort of, it was... I don't want to say split 50-50, but it was, there was a good share of people on both sides of whether the resolution was um, appropriate or inappropriate. Um, I was actually more surprised by the number of vets who uh, either reached out or, or messaged me on Twitter or wherever the forum may have been uh, and, and said, you know, this has been over for a long time. We shouldn't be going down this road. We shouldn't be dealing with this, this issue. Um, sort of my... 500,000-foot-level thoughts on this situation as I was covering it yesterday and and listening to different people sort of um, talk about Seneca Falls because, really, this is this is a Seneca Falls thing. This, this impacts, this resolution impacts all of Seneca Falls, not just the town board, not just uh, the, the town as a municipal entity. Um, a lot of people were talking about the, the money. Well, there shouldn't have been $200,000 or whatever the dollar amount was going to the Women's Hall of Fame for reasons X, Y, and Z. Um, my reaction to that was, well, they're tax dollars. They're tax dollars that we're either giving to local, state, or federal entities. And if that money does not come here, that money is going to go somewhere else. So once again, I come back to this idea of it's not a matter of if they're going to spend it or not. It's a matter of where they're going to spend it. And do you want it spent in your neck of the woods or would you rather it be spent down in New York City or in Washington or in a place, name off any of the places where people love to uh, gripe and complain that our tax dollars are going to. Um, the other thing is that the resolution is just a resolution. It can be undone with another resolution. It's not a local law. Odds are whoever... Whatever the makeup of the town board is next year on January 1st, since 
Supervisor Lazaro and Deputy Supervisor Ferrara are not running for another term. Odds are that they the the next board probably won't even acknowledge that it exists and we'll just continue doing business the way they've always done business which is to say that you know when it is necessary or when it is appropriate they will donate um and the other part of this too is i mean i think part of the reason why they had to go all the way back to 2010 as their cited period for when donations have been granted is because i couldn't find in the last two years when i went through the budgets I couldn't find any areas where the town had actually given uh, the Hall of Fame money. Um, so, you know, that's 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 a separate issue. And I also am, am very, again, the, the block grant dollars, those dollars are going to go somewhere. Now, you can have organizations in different communities access those funds on behalf of, I suppose, the, the town or the community at large. But really it is that that's between that agency and... Uh, the community and that's there's no there isn't that connection that I feel like is trying to be made through this resolution um, and and now we have a scenario where uh, after reading a little bit of WXXI's coverage of this um, Supervisor Lazaro has pretty much walked back um, the, the resolution I mean he still he says he still supports the resolution based on what's happening now but um, he, he supports the mission of the Hall of Fame. Um, he, he basically said it's just because of this inductee and, and it should continue to be about the, the Hall of Fame and the good they do and how great of an institution it is. But here we have this resolution, which seems to be a giant overstep, if nothing else. Yeah, it, it sounds like from what you're saying, I, I think he thought he was stepping up to defend the honor of veterans, and that I think a lot of veterans just said, um, we really don't need it, and we've been over it for a few decades, <laughs> go on to something else. And on the other hand, I would think that the town of Seneca Falls would want to support the Women's Hall of Fame. Uh, I would guess that the village of Cooperstown probably supports the Baseball Hall of Fame in some ways. It's a big tourist attraction. Uh, you know, they, they want the hall to be a big tourist attraction, along with the Women's Rights National Park. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think he got out ahead of himself, and then when he turned around and looked to see who was with him, found out there was nobody, and decided he better step back off the ledge. And and as of just literally moments before we started, we found out that the um, the meeting location for this Tuesday's meeting would be changed. So it will be at the community center in Seneca Falls, not at uh, the town hall, which has a limited capacity. Um, I think they're expecting a pretty... <laughs> Pretty good turnout, given the yeah. coverage that this uh, this resolution has received. Um, so it looks like we're getting closer to having an agreement on the state budget. Uh, part of that will give Governor Cuomo authority to close two state prisons in the 2019-2020 fiscal year. Uh, the governor has been talking about this for several weeks and says uh, it would save the state about $35 million. Um, it would also uh, eliminate approximately 1,200 beds. Um, within those facilities, <coughs> excuse me, within those facilities, um, thoughts, comments, concerns on this one. We talked about it a little bit this morning. Um, Seneca County is in kind of a unique situation because they just lost Hillside, and and losing that on top of this could also be uh, an, an added struggle. If Five Points, which is located in in Romulus, uh, is one of the uh, facilities that's shut down. I haven't heard, has there been any discussion of what might be shut down anywhere else? I mean, it's. I know a lot of people think, and, and sometimes you wonder, is this more politically taking it out on upstate New York? I mean, if we're going to close prisons, why does it need to be the one here? I, I And it, it seems like when you listen to the guards union that, that they say, look, we're already overcrowded as it is. And now we're closing more prisons down. I mean, we lost the Butler facility in Wayne County a few years ago. It seems mm-hmm. like the whole prison closing movement is mostly focused on upstate New York and primarily the Finger Lakes. So to that end, we did actually have a reader question that I was, I was going to save for the later in the show, but I'll just ask it now. Uh, Sylvia from Auburn asked, while the governor is talking about shutting down prisons, has he not been reading the stories about Places like Auburn Correctional in the last year where inmate fights, illegal weapons, and, and repeated lockdowns 
seem compl- seem pretty regular. Um, that's the part of this that I, I guess I'm kind of confused about because it seems that, and I believe there have been a few incidents at five points over the last year, year and a half, um, where they've had to go into lockdown. But it seems like if you're if you're going by, for example, the Auburn Citizen has had some incredible reporting um, on the the lockdowns and their frequency um, at Auburn Correctional. And honestly, if if you're gauging the the stability of these facilities and their ability to handle the inmates that are already there on these incidents, I'm not sure that you can even make the argument that he's making, which is we don't need the beds, right? Well, one of the things that's fascinated me since I've been in the Finger Lakes is the news black hole that is the prison system. You really have to dig Usually, it seems like when we hear about these lockdowns, it's always a week after it happened. I mean, in this era of instant information dissemination, there is no such thing from our prison system. We never get, I, I've never seen a release in the entire time I've been around from anybody. You you have to really dig to get that news. It so, ends up being the unions. Right. The unions uh, end up being the ones. Yeah, they're the ones that put out the information. So, yeah. I mean, unless you really do some old-fashioned shoe leather investigative journalism, it's pretty hard to get an accurate picture, I think, of what it's like inside these prisons. I, I mean, well, is there too much crowding? or do, Maybe we need more th- th- rather than less. I don't know. I have had plenty um, in the four and a half, five years that I've been here with Finger Lakes One, I've had plenty of uh, guards and folks who work inside these prisons send me messages on Facebook or reach out to me via email and say, hey, this is happening, but please don't. Right. You can't include my name. You right. can't include my name, and that I think is is what you're talking about. Not only just the, um, it's almost like saying, imagine the hardest town clerk town clerk's office you can imagine in the smallest, most closely knit community you can think of, because that's usually where you know journalists like us get get stonewalled most frequently, um, and and amp it up with the the grit and intensity of a, a state. Uh, system that's working pretty hard, it seems, to keep people out, keep people like us out. Yeah, and, and that's why it, it, I say it's hard to get an accurate picture of what conditions are. So if you're an ordinary citizen, how do you get yourself informed on this issue and, and say, okay, yeah, there are too many prison beds, or no, there aren't enough, why are you doing this? It, it's really hard to say. Well, and take the, the most recent um, lockdown at Auburn. Uh, which I think was just within the, it just ended or wrapped up within the last week or so. Um, You know, think about the fact that 83 makeshift weapons were seized during that lockdown, which spanned several weeks, I believe. I think the way it sounded, it was like a three or four week lockdown. Um, And and of course, we don't find out about it until it's all wrapped up and all over with and all done. Right. Um, But think about the fact that like, even if that's, Maybe that's normal. How many weapons are are normally seized at a facility like that over the course of a thirty day you know thirty day window? That to me, you know, when somebody says eighty three makeshift weapons were seized, which are mostly like pick style uh, weapons you would use to stab people, basically. Right. Um, when you're talking about eighty three weapons like that being seized. That does not sound like a system that's working. It doesn't sound like a system that's under control and, and one where you could say, well, we can afford to cut out 1,200 beds or two or three facilities across the state. It just doesn't. Well, and it does call atten- uh, to question the whole way that we, we do prisons. I mean, it, it, what incentive is there if I'm an inmate in a state prison and I'm going to be there for 10 years, what incentive do I have to behave nicely? I mean, there's very little. And it's funny because there's this societal opposition to cutting sentences down. People don't like the idea of, oh, he's getting out early because of good behavior. Well, if you don't have these incentives, then then what do you do to control the behavior of these people? If, like say, if I'm there for 10 years and I'm not getting out no matter what, then I've got no real reason to be nice to anybody. Well, I think we're talking about basically a... a difference in folks who want to just 
punish and lock away and those who want to actually rehab. Right, um, and I think our system leans heavily to the former, frankly. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, it does. And it, it's interesting because I think part of the problem with, and, and I'm not even personally sure where I fall um, in terms of, of that sort of philosophical difference. What's the balance? Because I think there is, you have to find some kind of balance between the two. But it's like, it is such a complex thing to try and overhaul, to change, to fix. Um, just think about the infrastructure alone. Say, you know, say the prison system were to move away from a, a lock them up and throw the key away style system to something that's more educational, more uh, built around rehab and treatment and whatever, whatever, whatever. Think about the infrastructure that would be required to make that happen. It would be intense. It would be complicated. <clears throat> and I'm not sure that the, the political will, frankly, um, would would even be there. Well, and look at the widespread opposition when the governor announced his plan to have uh, college tuition <laughs> for inmates. I mean, yeah. there and, and you can understand it because there's always the feeling among people who aren't prisoners, who didn't commit crimes, why is someone who committed a crime getting something that I can't get? So I, I, it would be a monumental task to try to change our system around to one of rehabilitation and education and job opportunities because, you know, people say, I didn't commit a crime and I don't get all those things. Well, and that's the, I think that's the, maybe that's where I break with some of those folks. Um, you know, I think that, because the thing that I always hear is, well, they don't have to pay for it. Well, they're paying for it by being locked up in a prison cell for, for 12 years. Are you saying that, you know, it's almost like, would you be willing to lock yourself in a prison cell for four years to get a free college degree? <laughs> I wouldn't. No. I mean, I wouldn't. I, I'll, I'll, try the, I'll try the free market on its own without, yeah. without a college degree if that's the price you have to pay to get a free one, or I'll just pay for it. Um, Lori Laughlin will get you in. Yeah. So, okay. We're there. Let, let's talk, let's talk about that. Um, the, the, the admission scandal, um, Jackie and I talked about it a little bit last week. Uh, I want to hear your take on it and then I'll sort of dive in and see, see where we line up or where we don't. I seem to be on a little bit of an island on this. I, to me, it's, it's a lot of ado about not very much. I think it's cranking up the outrage machine uh, the number of people really affected is pretty small. It isn't like tens of thousands of deserving students have been denied places in college because of this. And some form of this has been going on forever. What's the difference between what these Hollywood figures did and the people who give $500,000 to a college to have a building named after them? And then, hey, guess what? When their son applies a few years later, yeah, he's going to get in. Yeah. Well, it's funny because Dr. Dre got into all kinds of hot water on social media after this because he, uh, about a week after the dust settled on the initial story, he posted to social media about his daughter getting into a college, into USC, I believe, of all places, um, and, and saying basically she did it all on her own. And within, I don't even think it was within 20 minutes, someone had responded to that tweet and that response had gone viral where it had shown that he donated $70 million and had his name right. on a building. I mean, that, that to me is where the, the, the issue lies. I don't, I don't, it's going to sound terrible. I don't want to see these people prosecuted because there's a legal way to do it. And the legal way is just as morally bankrupt in well, my opinion. And I also, I think you have to ask yourself what obligation does a private college have to any particular student. Don't they get to decide who gets in and who doesn't? Uh, I mean, and, and it's these middlemen again, the people that, and, and, you know, why is it that crew students are getting any sort of preferential treatment to begin with? I mean, it's, it's we, I think we talked a little bit about one of the podcasts about the whole system of college aid and how there's just a ratcheting effect. The more aid that becomes available, the higher they raise the prices. The higher they raise yeah. the prices, the more aid that becomes available. So it, I understand the outrage, but it just seems like we, we have that. It's kind of what I call a Good Morning America story. It makes a great, there's conflict, and there's rich people, and there's shaming, and it all comes together and makes a story. But at the end of the day, the actual impact and actual damage done to anybody is pretty low. 
Yeah, and, and for all the talk, I, I was actually kind of disappointed about there being so much discussion afterward about the, the poor valedictorians and salutatorians who, who didn't get into their first choice or, God forbid, got denied by a school. Um, I'm much less worried about those students than I am the, the students who say are the, the 80 to 85s, the 85s to 89s who are sort of on the, the, the cusp, so to speak. Uh, in terms of being able to get into, because we all know that that those most private institutions are not um, accepting a wide range. They have a, a set expectation for what they want their students to be coming in academically. Right. I mean, they, I think they, Harvard takes twenty percent. I think was the figure I saw. So four out of every five people who apply to Harvard get a letter back. You know, they always say that the joke is whether you get the thin letter or the thick one. You know, if mm-hmm. you get the thick package, you know you're in. If you get the little letter in an envelope, you know it's no luck. Yeah, and, and to me, it's it just, again, this is happening. What, what people probably shouldn't forget is that this is happening at small university, universities and institutions, too. Um, the donations just aren't as big. Uh, the, the celebrities aren't quite as big and famous. Um, but you have high-profile folks who have access to money buying access to their next of kin by making a donation, or just outright making a payment. And- well, and that's in this case. I mean, that's the. I, I think that's the the funny part about this is just how clumsy and ham-handed this attempt was. I mean, instead of paying some sleazy middle guy to make believe your students a crew student, just go make a donation to the science department, and your kid's going to get in. Yeah, that that seems to be the the consensus there. Uh, changes coming at Del Lago Resort and Casino. They want to reduce the number of slot machines at their facility. Uh, that's because they're planning to offer sports betting once all the regulations are finalized. Uh, Steven Greenberg, spokesperson for Del Lago, confirmed the casino's plans on Thursday. Uh, he said, as Del Lago Resort and Casino looks forward to begin offering sports gaming in conjunction with our DraftKings partner, we are seeking to reduce the number of slots to construct our sports gaming facility and make other improvements for our customers, end quote. Um, seems reasonable, right? I guess it does, but it also seems a little bit suspicious that just a couple of days after the two other casinos that were described in all the reports as failing upstate casinos want to reduce their slots, now here comes another one in and trying to put the best spin on it. So are they doing this to make room for their sports gaming business, or are they doing this because they're, in fact, not meeting their revenue projections, which we seem to have a pretty good idea that they're not? Yeah, and and I guess not really knowing that industry all that well, um, I would be very curious to see what the actual... um, what the need would be inside a facility like that. I mean, a lot of folks do sports gambling now right here on this thing, on the, on the yeah. old smartphone. Um, you don't have to go to Del Lago or any place. You can just do it. Um, and you can do it with people anywhere. Like you can, you know, you can, you can connect with your friends in Hawaii or in California or wherever your friends are um, and, and set up games and do all the things that in theory you'd be able to do at a casino, but it would require other people being there. Um, it'll be very interesting to see how this sort of comes together and is executed over the the grand scheme of what would probably. I would assume that they would they would want to have it up and running as soon as possible. So, you know, does that mean they're going to be doing construction right in the middle of their facility while they're open? I, I, I assume from the sounds of that quote, it actually seems like they're going to be making some physical changes out there beyond just ripping out some some slots and, you know, calling it a day. Yeah, I, I don't know what goes into – I've said I'm a big sports fan. I'm not a sports better. I just mm-hmm. never have. I, I used to play free fantasy leagues with friends. I've never gone into DraftKings or uh, any of that fan duel, any of those kinds of things. I, I understand the appeal of it. Uh, I, I think what we're looking at is the race to see which casino closes first. I think that the – I think there's too many to support the industry, and I think somebody's going to close at some point in the not-too-distant future, whether it's going to be Tioga or one of the other ones that's been mentioned or whether it's going to be Del Lago. I mean, I know that's blasphemy to people here. You know, there was a big push about how great it was going to be to have them, and I've always been kind of a skeptic. 
because they said, you know, that's great, they're opening this place up, but what if somebody opens up another one? I mean, there's been talk for years about something in Rochester. Mm -hmm. If something opens in Rochester, that's going to draw away that whole western side of your audience. And one of the things that we've seen is that these big companies, if an asset is not performing, they're not afraid to walk away. They don't care if they have a big, shiny building. They'll close it down and they'll walk away if it isn't making what they think they need to make. Well, and that's the other part of it is, you know, if we're seeing anything consistently across the service industry as a whole, it's that brick and mortar isn't what it was 20 or 30 years ago. Right. And, and I just wonder with the way technology is advancing, with the way that you can already gamble on your smartphone, um, I almost wonder if it's just going to become a point where like a grocery store, like a department store, it starts to become maybe obsolete, the traditional big wide, um, really dark, kind of depressing casino. Um, Even though Del Lago did a lot of things, sort of broke the mold in terms of what a traditional casino would look like on the inside, um, it's still a really big space. And maybe it's a space that ultimately maybe five, ten years from now becomes one that's too big. Well, I'd be curious what the demographics are of a a casino based on slots. I know they have some table games and things. I would suspect it's older. I mean, we've seen the decline of the horse racing industry because younger people, well, like you just said, I mean, it's not just the convenience of the phone, but it's the quickness of it. I mean, horse race betting, you bet a race, it runs for two minutes, and now you wait 25 minutes for the next race as opposed to pulling that handle time and time again. I I just think it's an older demographic and I think maybe you're right. It might be another industry that's going to have to either retool itself or disappear in the face of technology. Well, it's kind of like the the, the changes we see in the media landscape too, right? Like we, we see this, we see the data that, you know, the traditional mediums like TV, um, newspapers, they're still being consumed. They're still being uh, read, but the the makeup of who's reading, I think, is changing, and and the numbers bear that out. But we we aren't necessarily like the big the cable. I think of like the cable news stations. I, I believe, I think it was last year. I had read a report that said uh, the average age watching those ranged basically between like fifty eight, fifty nine, and like sixty five, sixty six years old. Um, that's fine right now. Just like it's fine right now if your audience skews older at a place like Del Lago. But 10 years from now, that's going to be a problem because they're going to age. That group is going to age out of right. your customer and, base. And, is and it's there not going to be replaced. Exactly. It's yeah. not like that's the, you know, the people in their 40s, I would say it, it's funny. Like you can sort of go through the, the different, and we were talking about this uh, through social media. I had a, a young person in here talking about social media, and it, we both sort of said, well, we're not really active on Facebook because our grandparents are. Right. And right. that's literally like that's that is basically like Facebook has become the the seniors version of, of a good social media platform. Right. Meanwhile, Instagram, Snapchat, um, they're they're the others, Twitter, they're growing and, and they're becoming better because of the audience shift. And I think everybody has to think more about not what the demographics are now but what the demographics are going to look like as, as those groups continue to age through the, the, the system. Right, and, and what changes are ahead in the way that we our information is delivered and our services are delivered. It's, it's like you say, the, it's, I mean, in my industry, I, I remember the first time I saw a CD, and it was just the most amazing thing, and now they're old, passe technology. I mean, yeah. there, you know, there, there are... Businesses that don't bother having a website anymore because they think they don't need a website. I got Facebook, yeah. I got Instagram, I'm on all these platforms, and it's a it's a rapidly changing world, and it's real easy for an industry. I mean, the media industry is Exhibit A to get caught up in it. Uh, newspapers for a long time, I think, denied the changes that were coming and put their head in the sand and refused to believe it. Uh, my own broadcast industry has been somewhat guilty of that, and, and we're having to do things differently in order to keep up. So it's just technology moves at, at a different speed. I mean, I think the, I don't know who had the saying, but something about that internet time is seven times faster than regular time or something. So, yeah, I, I think that's a very good point, is that the idea of going to a big building and pulling handles 
maybe in 15 years, no one's going to want to do that anymore. Yeah, and if the idea is that you know the horror story that every or the horror story that we see keep playing out on social media is that oh no, New York is this really liberal, forward-thinking place, progressive-thinking place. Well, forward-thinking, progressive means more mobile, less <laughs> less physical. Um, and to that end, eventually, I think there will come a time when a lot of the things that we um, we expect, and actually, the next topic we're going to talk about, it's a good segue, um, are are sort of geared and legislated in the direction of hurting people toward mobile and away from the traditional brick and mortar. That's the way I've now been thinking about this whole plastic bag ban. It's, I think it's much less about the environment, frankly, and much more about trying to, to create this physical change in the business industry that we aren't seeing. I mean, small businesses are going to have to do something different and we don't know how it's going to actually work out, um, whether that just means a higher cost of product for the consumer or if it means it may actually question whether they can stay in business. But using the plastic bag ban as an example, who's to say that, you know, 10% of people who normally shop at a grocery store within two years or three years transition over to something like Amazon delivery or Instacart? You know, I, I think that, and maybe 10% isn't a big, maybe that's not make or break, um, but it, it starts that decline. It's like when you had the internet boom back in the late nineties, it, it got the ball rolling. And now 20 years later, digital is sort of taking over everything. And the traditional mediums are having to kind of fast forward and figure out what their, what their next move is. And this is one of those scenarios where it's like, you can remove plastic bags and you can try to force people to use the, the canvas bags that I think everyone, everyone is assuming what that next step is going to look like. Um, or it's going to force them to maybe, maybe more grocery stores will have to think about doing like in-house delivery. Is that maybe that's going to be a thing where like they're literally bringing you their groceries, your groceries like in a box and they're walking them to you and they're taking the box back to their car and they go back to the grocery store. I just think there's that part of it that it's it's almost undeniable because we see all of these different pieces of legislation where it's restrictive on the business owner and it's not helpful to doing business, especially in upstate New York in these rural communities. And here you are. And what's the next move? The legislation is first, but what's the next step after that? Well, I think what we're looking at it, it, when you – step back and take kind of a broad overview is some fundamental changes in the way we live. Uh, for a lot of years, we were the richest nation on earth. We got a lot of resources. We extract fossil fuel out of the ground and we burn oil and we use all the electricity we want. And there's starting to be a recognition that that's not really a responsible way to live, to just use up resources and throw them away, that, that we need to be more self-sustainable. We need to find energy sources that aren't fossil fuels, because eventually the fossil fuels are going to run out. But there's just a, there's, there's kind of a uniquely American opposition to being forced to change the way we live. Yet, you know, we, we change the way that we live. I mean, you, you talk about Simple little things. Everybody walking around today has a water bottle. When I was a kid in the 1960s and 70s, nobody had a water bottle. You, you know, water was something you went over to the tap and turned on the faucet and got a cup, and it wasn't a paper cup that you threw away. It was a cup that you put in the sink and washed out and put back up. I mean, you know, the way we live changes. I think there's, there's a technological aspect to it, like you're saying, but I think a lot of it is just the idea that it's just not responsible to have this bag that we use for 20 seconds and carry out to the car and 20 more seconds to carry it into the house, and then we throw it away, and it winds up stuck in a tree. Well, and think about how frustrated people are going to be when um, when they get one of these paper bags and they pay $0.05 cents or whatever the tax is on that thing to get it, um, and it breaks on their way out to the car because we know – Really, the reason why we switched from paper to plastic in the first place was because of the durability factor. And 
at least from from what I when I talk to especially older folks who say you know they remember the the paper bag days, it, it's convenience and it's durability, and you know I just think to myself if paper bags are the alternative now, and that durability thing is still an issue, mm, that's not going to work. Yeah, and I I mean. I think the real reason we switched to plastic is because it was cheaper. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, business owners, and, and, and I don't blame them. Business owners are going to try to find a way to run their businesses as cheaply as possible. So if you can get 20 plastic bags for the cost of one paper bag, you're going to do that. I just heard the story today. Uh, Wegmans has come out against the plastic ban. They say it takes them seven tractor-trailer trucks to transport the equivalent of paper bags to what one can do with plastic. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and which is, that's another one of the problems we deal with in all this environmental stuff. It's like, you know, all right, let's switch over to electric cars. And then, all right, how do we generate that electricity by burning coal in a coal burning power plant? So now we've got plastic bags to save the trees, and Wegmans will need seven times as many diesel burning tractor trailer rigs out on the road. So, it's hard to kind of step back and and take the the, the long view of some of these things. Mm-hmm. Well, and I don't think many politicians, frankly, do that or even in, are interested in considering doing that. Because... Well, and why would you when you're on a two year cycle? I mean, that's we've talked about that before. And the way our politics are set up, when you're uh, you know when you're a representative in Congress and your term's only two years, you really can't afford to think about ten years from now. You're thinking about the next couple of months and raising enough money to get reelected. Yeah. Now, have you been following any of the stories uh, from the Q Regional Digester? The, the the controversy around the DEC is now in bed. Well, they had surprise inspection to basically test and find out whether the local claims were true or not. Um, turns out they were true. Um, so the issue here seems to be, from my perspective, and we're I, myself and Peter Mantius were on uh, connections with Evan Dawson earlier this week talking about this this story uh, before the DEC actually came out with their findings from the inspection on uh, March 11th, um, which found that needles, glass bottles, that sort of thing were getting mixed into uh, what was supposed to be just essentially food waste and manure and things like that. Um, someone emailed us from Auburn and asked if they were worried. And this was something that I had said on the show. I don't think, I don't think they knew that I asked this, but um, does this raise concerns about staffing with the DEC? Issues like this. So, so here's the scenario. Uh, the, the manager for this facility in January quits because he feels like he's being strong-armed into accepting illicit types of waste. He quits. He walks away. Other employees quit because they're being asked to sort through this waste. Neither of those things set off a red flag with the DEC. And you have community sort of like this grassroots push to flush flush the truth out. And that doesn't really seem to generate a whole lot of uh, concern with the DEC. And then finally... After a couple in-depth investigative uh, reports and some some serious pushing, the DEC does a surprise investigation. They go in there, um, they they run tests, they check the paperwork that the facility has held over the last year, and come to find out things haven't really been going the way they were supposed to. Do we have a DEC problem more than we have a landfill digester environmental problem is my question. I think we have, in general, a regulatory agency problem. There there are a lot of people who are hostile to the idea of regulating industry to begin with. That's where part of this New York is unfriendly for business stuff comes from. And I think... it, it, there's a certain amount of human nature. If you're if you're in the DEC, do you want to have to go to the effort of doing this inspection? Do you want to stir up a lot of dirty laundry, or do you want to let sleeping dogs lie? To use two different unrelated metaphors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's interesting, and I think there is. I think we're at a point now where something has to happen. Like something has to give or change. 
um, because the state's talking about a lot of different things that they want to do in terms of a uh, waste plan, waste reduction plan. All of those things are great, but if you don't have oversight of that plan, the plan is just a piece of paper. I mean, it doesn't mean anything. Um, I, I think that's the real issue at this point. And, and maybe if I'm hopeful, it's, I'm hopeful that some of the, the community anger and outrage that's been exhibited toward the different entities that are running these facilities is also redirected a little bit to the DEC and just to basically let them know that coasting along, whether you have to, whether they have to lobby more for more employees or they have to get cozy with the governor, whatever the case may be, do something so that you can do your job appropriately. But I, I think there's a little bit of a contradiction going on here, too. I mean, the very same people who don't want plastic bags to be banned are now upset that they're sneaking illegal things into the digester. I mean, it's okay, so you don't want all this stuff going to the digester. How willing are you to change the way you live? Mm-hmm. When are we going to... We can talk about recycling. We can talk about all this stuff. When are we going to reduce the amount of unnecessary packaging? Uh, I mean, you, you buy... Uh, a, I just bought a new DVD player the other day. You bring it home. You found one? Yeah, actually. <laughs> <laughs> funny enough, talking about almost outdated technology. Uh so you bring it home, and it's in the styrofoam, and there's plastic wrap over that. It, it, half the consumer products that we bring home are packaged in packaging that's designed to be ripped off and thrown away immediately. So it's all part of a bigger picture. We, if, if we're not willing to change the way that we live, then I don't think we can be critical that they're trying to sneak stuff into the digester. I mean, it's all part of the same thing. Yeah, and, and you know, sort of going back to what we were talking about earlier, I can't help but think about the, the governor saying, when he's talking about closing prisons, he says, well, a local economy shouldn't rely on prisons. Okay, but, but it does, and that's reality. And reality is, is that you don't just, if you're going to go through this change process that you're talking about, where you have to sort of shift the way people think about using plastics or, or reusable, whatever the case may be, that's a process. Like, that transition has to be a process. It's not just rip the Band-Aid off and, and pretend the Band-Aid was never there. There was still a Band-Aid there. Um, well, you know what? You know, I think you just... I, I think you just <laughs> figured out how we are governed in this state, in this country. That's what we do. We rip Band-Aids off. There isn't any long-term process. There, it's, it's the issue and the controversy of the day. Mm-hmm. And people, Well, it, it, let me just jump in. I'll throw up, up a topic here. that sure. I, I talked about this this morning. Is We now had uh, two of our Republican state senators, including Senator Helming, call for an end to tax subsidies for the movie industry to make films in New York City. The same people who were upset for people who called for an end to tax subsidies for Amazon. How does one square those two beliefs? Yeah, it's the... Is it that it's just too political? Because it, it seems like you're just basically talking about two different political camps, and of course they don't agree because, God forbid, they just can't get on the same page in terms of philosophy and... I think what it comes down to is that the movie industry is seen as a den of liberals, so conservatives don't want to get them tax breaks. I think that's what it comes down to. But it just seems to me that that, that I, I think that's when we, when we careen from crisis to crisis and conflict to conflict, we don't step back to take that longer view and say, okay, either tax subsidies for industries that produce jobs are good or they're not good. Mm-hmm. But I don't see how they can be good for you, but not good for you. I just there there seems to be a a big contradiction there. Yeah, and did you see the did you see the headlines about uh, McDonald's finally backing off of the minimum wage fight? No, they're done. They're not. They're done lobbying against uh, the set. I believe fifteen dollar minimum wage. They're just they're finished with it. Was that um, after they put all the self serve kiosks in? That's why I wanted to talk about it, because I don't think it's coincidental that you see the company about a year after I started seeing them pop up in local, in local, you know, um, the one in Manchester, I believe, has a couple. Um, 
the one in Canandaigua, I think, has a couple as well. Um, a lot of them in Rochester have them. Um, the self-serve kiosk, you go in, you beep, 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 punch in the buttons, and then all of a sudden, um, about two minutes later, lady says, your order's here. Um, I don't have a problem with that, but I think it's kind of funny juxtaposing that with the fact that now they say, well, we're not going to lobby against a $15 minimum wage anymore. That's fine. So, well, and the other thing that we're beginning to see happen is a number of companies are being forced to increase wages to find workers. We have such low unemployment mm-hmm. right now. It's a tight labor market. A number of companies are offering wages pretty close to what that minimum was going to be anyway. So we spent all this time having this debate, and then economic conditions kind of rendered it irrelevant. I mean, I you know I understand. I sympathize with business owners trying to reduce their costs. I, I always, I, again, I try to take this consistent view and say, is my thought on this thing consistent with my thought on this thing? So if, if as a consumer, I'm free to seek the lowest price, there's no law that forces me to go to this store and pay a higher price. There really shouldn't be a law forcing a business owner to pay a higher price for labor. So I, I understand they're, they're opposing a minimum wage. On the other hand, the minimum wage hasn't kept up and a lot of people making it can't get by. And again, trying to take a long view, a society that has a bunch of low-paid peons that aren't making enough to live, that's not going to be a healthy economy for very long. Yeah, and, and I do see this scenario where some, some of the folks who, who were vocally opposed to this said, well, hey, you're just going to see fewer people employed, and the people who are employed will make the minimum wage, the higher minimum wage, but you're going to have more people unemployed and relying on public assistance. So it'll all balance itself out at the end. There again, this is like the sort of the college debate that we had. If you don't control the cost, if you don't control the way government spends, if you don't control the, 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 the level of property taxes and what it costs to actually live day to day, it doesn't matter what minimum wage is. Minimum wage is always going to have to keep going up. We're not going to get to a place where the cost or the value of something is less if the numbers aren't changing on the other side of the scale. Right. So to that end, that, that literally, that gets us through everything that we are planning on talking about today. So the last question I'm going to throw to you is anything that you're sort of watching now that we're in sort of like the, I think, five or six days before the budget will have to become something real, something that we have to deal with for the next year. Obviously, there were, we got a bunch of questions about early voting and, and when that stuff was going to start to happen. We'll talk about that in the next show. Um, I didn't want to add that into everything else because it's complicated and we're already in the middle of election season now because election season is all the time. Um, <laughs> but is there any, any story that you're watching uh, just sort of going ahead that's keeping your interest up. I'm still interested in figuring out how the budget process works in New York. I'm still mystified by it. I still don't understand why things that have nothing to do with spending money are in the budget. I still yeah, don't why understand. are laws in there? <laughs> right. I, I still don't understand why it's three guys in a room or whatever it is. Um, I think there's a decent chance we're going to be late again. I have Assemblyman Mankelow scheduled for my show Monday morning, and I've already been warned by his office that there's a decent chance he'll be pulling an all-nighter on Sunday night and he might not be available Monday. So <laughs> so I, I hope it's okay to share that information, but I think there's a pretty <laughs> decent chance that budget negotiations will be going on Monday morning at 8.15 a.m. And it, there's just, there's got to be a better way to, whether you're Republican, whether you're Democrat, whether you like Cuomo, hate Cuomo, there, there's got to be a better way. It's got to be more organized. It's just what a what a, a horrible process, and and again, what that creates is disdain for government and apathy about government and less participation in government. There's there's just we we got to have a better way to do this than we do now. I forgot, Pamela from Geneva. It sent in this question. I did want to, I wanted to get your take on it. Should we be worried about the Phelps Sun Gas buyout? And that was one that I think you guys broke earlier this week. Um, Phelps Sun Gas being purchased by a company in, uh, I believe, Toronto, based out of Toronto. It doesn't look like there's going to be any change, at least from the reporting that I've seen. It doesn't look like there's going to be any change. In there terms never of what, does <laughs> but when it first happens. Is this 
should should maybe there be a little bit of concern about that, especially since I don't I don't know what their employment numbers look like, but I would imagine they employ quite a few people in Ontario County. I don't know all the facts in this particular case, but I just I think one of the fundamental economic changes of the 20th century has been concentration in ownership and more distant ownership from where places are located. I, I've told the story about my own hometown in New Hampshire, the paper mill town. For a long time, the paper mill was owned by a local family, and it was thriving. It employed a lot of people. That local family was rich, but they paid their employees well. They cared about their community. And then one day in the 70s, that company was sold to a distant company in Virginia that now had only an obligation to its stockholders. And so now today, that paper mill is mostly torn down, and that industry has been decimated, and that area's economy has been decimated. I just, I think that's been our biggest fundamental change in the 20th century now into the 21st is that concentration in ownership. I, I don't think it serves us really well as a public when we have fewer and fewer choices, when Kmart can't compete with Walmart anymore, and when you know Wegmans has to close down Chase Pitkin because they can't compete with Home Depot and Lowe's. I, so I think we ought to be concerned on a bigger scale. This particular instance, I don't know enough about the company or the industry to say, but I just don't think it serves us well when we get fewer and fewer and fewer companies controlling more and more and more of our lives. Yeah, and, and you know, sort of compare that to the, the scenario that we've seen play out in uh, Seneca County here now with uh, potentially losing two big employers uh, if, God forbid, Five Points were to close. Um, you'd be talking about hundreds and hundreds of, of employees and jobs lost in Seneca County, and that would that would do damage. And you're right, I think it is a matter of thinking a little more big scale, a little more regional, a little more uh, how everybody can contribute to it rather than just kind of these isolated incidents uh, that lead to a big problem. Where can folks listen to you Monday through Friday? On the Finger Lakes Morning News on Finger Lakes News Radio in Geneva, that's 95.9 FM and 1240 AM WGVA. In Auburn, it's 98.1 FM and 1590 AM WAUB. All right, that's all the time we have for today. We'll be back next Friday. Until then, stay tuned, keep reading, and I will see you back here.